This is an interesting issue. We were just talking about BC tomorrow. They will officially decriminalize possession of small amounts of hard drugs, stuff like methamphetamine and MDMA and so on. Uh, that is part of a push here. They've gotten disp- dispensation from the federal government for three years. It's part of a push to try to treat drug addiction more as a public health issue than a criminal issue. Uh, it comes, of course, on the heels of thousands upon thousands of deaths uh, in the opioid crisis here. And this really broad idea that something has to be done, something else has to be done, that whatever we're doing now is not working. Uh, so this is something that has been tried elsewhere. Uh Portugal specifically. There's a version of it in Oregon, just south of BC, of course. And they're going to try it out here. And we'll be watching. I mean, a lot of people across the country will be watching. All those provinces struggling with similar addiction issues will be watching to see how this works in BC. Another thing that's come up a lot is the whole conversation around addiction and mental health. And one way proposed to help deal with that is to expand the scope of involuntary mental health treatment. In other words, giving people treatment against their will. It's part of this of this multi-pronged strategy that BC is looking at. Involuntary or mandatory treatment is among BC Premier David Eby's proposals to expand mental health care support. It also includes funding more mental health emergency teams. So there's support there, but at the basis, this is trying to get help for more people, whether they want it or not. Uh, it's allowed under BC's Mental Health Act. A person can be detained in a psychiatric facility if a doctor deems it necessary for health and safety reasons, as well as for the safety and others. Um, EB is proposing to expand that system further. Uh, and advocates are warning this could further infringe on the rights of some, including marginalized people. And my next guest agrees with those concerns. It's a personal story for him, but investigative journalist Rob uh, Wipon is the author of a new book called Your Consent is Not Required. In it, he claims that it's a common misconception that due to many larger mental health facilities, asylums, and so forth, closing over decades past, that only dangerous people get committed now. He says that forced psychiatric interventions today occur occur in thousands of public and private hospitals in the U.S. and here in Canada, and also in group and long-term care facilities, troubled teen and residential treatment centers, even in people's own homes under outpatient commitment orders. And he says that the help for many people, uh, are instead the help that is supposed to be given to many people is has the very opposite effect. And Rob Wipon joins me now from Calgary. Rob, thanks so much for your time. Thanks a lot for having me on. Um, you know, we talk about this a lot. I think, you know, clearly the the whole notion of, of the mental health care system has been talked about a lot these days. But you dug into this in a, re, in a very interesting and interesting way. What was your purpose in setting out to write this? What were you hoping to figure out? Well, you know, I've always been most interested in the civil rights aspects of the mental health system. People come into the mental health system for a lot of different reasons, you know, and get a lot of different things from it. I'm most concerned with the people who don't actually want the help or they want it in a certain way and they're given it in a different way. And suddenly they find themselves in situations where their their basic fundamental civil rights are being taken away from them. I witnessed it happen to my own father and I was kind of stunned how a you know person with no mental health history a career college professor of computer engineering uh, suddenly going through a difficult time in his life seeks help at a at a psychiatric hospital and rapidly finds himself detained against his will and and being subjected to treatments that he didn't want and it was a brutal a humiliating and in many ways brutal experience for him and to some degree for our whole family 
I can only imagine. I mean, Rob, what happens here? I always get the sense, and from that the part of the problem is that once you once you disappear into that system, you kind of disappear, and that's the problem. And it's very hard, even for families, to get people back out of that system. Yeah, it can it can cut both ways. You know, sometimes families are actually very proactively involved in trying to get someone um, they care about forcibly treated against their own loved one's will, and this can cause incredible uh, disruption and conflict within families and there will be a, a close collaboration between those those families and the treatment professionals on the other hand if a family is defending the rights of their loved one often yeah they can get cut out and, and there's extraordinary power that's given by legislation to these treatment providers to do exactly that and it's stunning how often they use and abuse those powers when you look at examples of that, I guess the hard question is, where do you draw the line between getting someone help and forcing help upon someone who deserves to have a say in their own treatment? Well, these situations, what I found in looking into this is far more complex, and there are far many more different kinds of situations than we sort of normally talk about much publicly. And that's one of my goals of the book is to kind of get us more aware collectively of the extraordinary range of people whose lives are being upended by this power. Often we default to, you know, some worst case scenario of a person wandering the street, you know, naked and behaving some way and nearly killing themselves in front of cars and well shouldn't we help that person well yeah we should try to help that person uh, i don't know that the help even for that person should be strapping them down in restraints and injecting them with with uh, heavy tranquilizers if that's really going to help them and that's what we need to talk about is what is forced treatment it can often be very aggressive and very hard and brutal uh, but but more importantly to also open up the dialogue that it happens to people like my father it happened to one of my roommates there's many people who are friends of mine who at some point in their lives have been going through a difficult period and ended up in this system. And, and they're very afraid to speak out publicly now because they don't want it to happen again. And so we need to talk more about those kinds of situations, those gray areas where you kind of go, yeah, I'm not sure I personally want to be strapped down and forcibly injected with a tranquilizing drug. And that would cause huge problems, I would imagine, when it comes to people feeling comfortable seeking help that they may need in a situation of distress. So if they fall back into that situation, feeling confident enough to reach back out and go back into that system that in the past may have felt they may feel has betrayed them already. Yeah, and you've hit on one of the most common criticisms of my work is psychiatric professionals really do not want people to know the dangers, the risks of what can happen because they know full well that that's what happens. Somebody goes through one of these experiences even once and they're often terrified to ever reach out for help again. So if it really backfires, and honestly, in some ways, I don't understand why more mental health professionals are not speaking out against forced treatment because they see this on a daily basis. They know it. In fact, that's why they're criticizing me for talking about it. It's because they're saying, you shouldn't tell people this. You shouldn't tell them the truth, right? Which I find just objectionable as a journalist, as someone who believes in the value of public awareness and public dialogue. When we look at these stories, and, and please share some with listeners, because I think, you know, when, when I was thinking about speaking to you today, you know, the first one that came to mind was like Britney Spears, right? Like that's the first case that came into my mind. We get these high profile cases of guardianship, for instance, which is different. But so listeners understand where you're coming from. 
what are, what are some good examples of cases where that you feel exemplify what it is you're trying to put forth in this book? Yeah, there's some really potent ones uh, from Canada. So, for example, a, a fellow in in Victoria, actually, uh, uh, working with a Vancouver company in the workplace, had a conflict with his human resource managers with whom he had a, a long-standing sort of series of disagreements, and it was about him getting laid off. It's unclear, you know, it was just a conversation <laughs> between them, what exactly got said, uh, but the point is, the human resource manager decided to call police and say, oh, I'm worried about his well-being, and his home was surrounded by a team of police officers officers armed, like a, a SWAT team, as they call it in America. And, uh, you know, it was a very dangerous situation. Overall, he had no idea this was going on. He, he walked outside to go get some lunch at the neighborhood shopping mall and was surrounded, handcuffed, taken up to the, to the psychiatric hospital. They promptly let him go the next day after they'd forcibly tranquilized him and knocked him out uh, for the night. And in the morning, they realized, oh, you know, you're, you're, you're fine. You can go. But he, he felt brutalized by the experience. You know, another example also on the West Coast uh, was a fellow who was protesting uh, ag against Revenue Canada and Revenue Canada called 911. Oh, well, you know, perhaps this protester is behaving in a little bit of a bizarre sort of way in their opinion. And so the police came and, and ultimately there were three encounters of this kind and they did finally take him up to the psychiatric hospital. Again, he, he was trapped up there for a little while, uh, in the, his case, 11 days because he refused to, to speak. He was standing by his his right to a lawyer and his right to not be forcibly treated in this way. And so they just kept them and kept them. And finally, when he opened up, they were like, oh, you don't need to be here. Goodbye. But he'd been forcibly drugged and detained for all of that time. So those are kind of examples where I go, OK, are we using this power in an appropriate way? Rob, Rob Wipon is with us this half hour. He is the author of the newly released Your Consent is Not Required. It really looks into forced psychiatric interventions in both the U.S. and in Canada and has uh, raised some alarm bells about what exactly is going on, often invisible to the majority of us, no no doubt, right? Uh, Rob, there, there is a lot of talk about, you know, about the fact that um, a lot of large psychiatric facilities right across the country shut down many decades ago or slowly shut down over the decades. And somehow the loss of these facilities has led to what we see today, you know, big, big issues with, with mental health and addiction, uh, with the unhoused and so on, that it's all part of one cascade. You've looked out, you've, you've found that those numbers are based on some stuff that might, we might want to think twice about. Yeah, that's right. I mean, certainly this occurred. It's a fact that we used to have many more large institutions and we have far fewer of those today. But what happened actually is that multiplication of smaller institutions. And when I looked at the numbers in the United States, uh, a couple of major government agencies decide to look at it. So I really got some very good numbers there. And they made it very clear that, in fact, there doesn't seem to have been a decrease at all. And if, if anything, we may have had an increase in the number of psychiatric beds of different kinds, both inpatient hospital-like facilities and uh, group homes, residential care facilities of different kinds. A plethora of those uh, have grown over, over many decades. And as far as I know, the same trends are true in Canada. I didn't find a similar study here. I can't say it doesn't exist, but a lot of the same trends do exist. So for example, there was a study out of British Columbia that tracked about 189 people that were discharged from Riverview Hospital, uh, one of the last 
vast groups of long-term patients there. And uh, they found every one, all 189 people, and found that only one had spent some time homeless and one had spent some time in jail. All the rest were in these kinds of smaller, often coercive, sometimes locked down facilities that are out there. And we need to talk much more about those kind of facilities because they're, they're largely unregulated and what's really happening to people in them. So, so where should we go from here? I mean, I, I think what you've set out to show is that uh, the system is has flaws. Uh, it sometimes works. It sometimes doesn't. What would you like to see done? I mean, I think everyone here, I think almost everyone hopes that there's a different and more effective way of coping with those who are in mental health distress and trying to find them the help they need in a way that also respects their civil liberties. How do we walk that line these days when, as you mentioned, the system is such a patchwork now? Yeah, well, one of the main things we have to do is look at the World Health Organization and the United Nations have both stood up to say we need to abolish forced psychiatric treatment. After many years of consultations, they've concluded the science does not show that it actually helps people. It often traumatizes people. So what it's become is a form of policing. And we need to be very careful and much more honest. So that's what I argue in the book. As I say, if we're going to talk about this, we need to talk honestly that this is a policing operation. This is not a form of helping people. When we talk about rounding up homeless people and putting them in psychiatric hospitals and drugging them. That's a social control operation. Let's call it what it is and then say, is this really what we want to be doing? Is this really how we want to help people? So I say, first of all, be more honest. And second of all, look to the World Health Organization, which has really stood up and started to give guidance to countries. And they've frequently reprimanded Canada over the last few years for not following any of these kind of guidances on how to make the system less coercive. You just don't need this level of power. And let's separate out also the notion of containing someone who might actually be physically dangerous from forcibly medicating and drugging them, getting into their brains and minds with these techniques. That's a whole different level. And that's where the World Health Organization is saying, we don't have the evidence to be giving these kind of drugs to people when they don't want them. If they want them, that's another thing altogether. But if they don't, we should respect that. I, I suspect part of the problem here is that you've put people um, in situations like this into a system that is relatively understaffed, and the only way to control, at least, and then typically, you know, I'll use the word control loosely, but the way to control them is to sedate them. Well, we see that a bit in long-term care, another yeah. place where it's being used uh, against elderly people, often with dementia. So there's some argument there that perhaps if, if people had better training and if there were more of them, they could intervene in different ways. They're using antipsychotic tranquilizers as a way of making people docile in those kind of settings. And it's far worse in Canada, I must say, than it is in the United States. So that's something we as a country need to look into. But rather, we as a culture should really care more about how we're interfacing, how we're interacting in our daily lives with people who may be struggling in different ways, you know, and that's really what this is about. So that's what another thing I'd like to see. I know it's tough sometimes to compare the U.S. to other, you know, healthcare systems like ours or Britain's because there is always that profit motive in the U.S. that at least I, perhaps sometimes we exaggerate that profit motive. But when you looked into what the source of this would be in Canada, and I know that were some comments to you from from readers or people who are interested in this from the U.K. as well who had similar thoughts. What do you think is driving this in a public healthcare system? Yeah. 
Uh, you know, I definitely think there's a factor of livelihood. So even in a nonprofit or public system, people are still making some money, right? And and in the U.S. in the public system too, often there's a profit motive involved there. However, I do argue strongly and feel strongly that it has to do with a broader buy-in in our culture to this approach, to sort of becoming more aggressive about people who are uh, different or deviant or otherwise, you know, disruptive in our culture, in different institutional contexts. I mean, it's becoming really common in schools for teachers to get children taken up to psychiatric hospitals against their will, this kind of thing. So what I'm finding is there's just a sort of uh, a belief that this is the right way to go. And so we really need to look again much more deeply at, well, what are we really talking about here? What does this really look like? What impacts is it really having? And that's in that sense, again, I hope that my book opens up the dialogue around these kinds of issues. Well, the book is called Your Consent is Not Required. It's out now. The author is Rob Whitepond. Thank you so much for your time. This is a fascinating subject. Thank you.